I greet you in the name of Jesus the Christ as we gather in worship today. Uh, today we are continuing our Lenten worship series, which features the adventures of a biblical superhero of faith named Daniel. The book of Daniel is found in the Old Testament between Ezekiel and Hosea, and you discover in his pages that the prophet exemplified the best of the Jewish religion as well as of faithful living. The theme of the entire book is found in Daniel 4, verse 17. The Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth. To put that in shorthand, God rules. Whatever we face, whatever comes our way, we serve the God who rules over all and is in that faith and that confidence that we live life. We're primarily focusing on Daniel 1 through 6, which talks about the adventures of Daniel and his three friends that we typically know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And today's sermon looks at these three facing the fiery furnace. And our scripture lesson comes from Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. I know you're spoiled seeing it up on the screen. You won't today. If you brought one of these, you can actually turn to it and read along with me. We hear these words. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of God that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Amen. Last week, we heard the backdrop of the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar had led his Babylonian armies to the kingdom of Judah and defeated it in battle. In the aftermath, he desecrated the Jerusalem temple. Recall, this is the place where the Jews believed God himself dwelt. And the king took the furnishings, transported them back to Babylon, where he put them in his own God's temple. And the Jews felt as if the Lord had abandoned them, that God was not there to protect them, that somehow they had failed their Lord, who now was no longer protecting them. In a follow-up move, Nebuchadnezzar ordered the best and brightest of the Jewish leadership to be exiled to Babylonia. It was a common practice. 
It robbed the land of its leadership and reduced the odds of a revolt or revolution occurring. Once they arrived in the foreign kingdom, the king told his chief of staff, I want you to select an elite group of young Jewish men who are bright and teachable. Spend the next three years indoctrinating them in Babylonian literature and language. It was a calculated process of assimilation. And the end product was to transform these Hebrew men into Babylonian subjects who could then serve the king in royal service. Among this group was a man named Daniel and his three friends. Last week, we also saw that one of the first things they did was give these men new names, to give them Persian names, which would signify unto everyone they now belonged and served the king. And so Daniel became Belteshazzar, Hananiah became Shadrach, Mishael became Meshach, and Azariah became Abednego. And I did point out that it kind of, sort of, worked. We remember Daniel by his Hebrew name, but the other three, including our children and youth, recall them by their Persian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Time goes on, and we come to Daniel chapter 3. For some unknown reason, the king decides, hey, here's an idea. I'm going to erect a large golden idol or statue on the plains of Babylon. In our current measuring system, it would have been about 90 feet high, nine feet wide. And he gives these directions, which are repeated several times in Daniel chapter 3, to all the people, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and to worship the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has erected. It must have been a comical sight. People would be going about their own business. Suddenly, for some reason, the band would strike up the music, and everybody was called to drop what they were doing, fall to the ground, and to worship the idol. It's kind of like a game of musical chairs around the idol, but in reverse. When the music started, they were called to sit down and to worship this god. Then the comedy turns to tragedy. Some of the native Babylonian astrologers see a chance to get back at these Jewish upstarts who have been promoted perhaps even ahead of them. And so they come to the king, and this is the report they make. There are some Jews you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Do you catch the irony here? These Jewish men are being accused of atheism. They're not worshiping the Babylonian gods. They're not worshiping the idol. They're refusing the king's decree. One of the commentaries I used in getting ready for the sermon was the interpreter's Bible, and they make this insightful comment. The most infuriating aspect of radical faith is its adamant refusal to be impressed with the obvious. Here, 
namely the subordinated status and the powerlessness of the gods before the mighty emperor and their steadfast adherence to the alternate reality, God reigns. Kings in the ancient Near East did not take disobedience to their commands lightly. King was furious. He called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to appear before him and quickly spells out to them the consequences of their actions. You have a chance to bow down and worship the idol or you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And the three Jewish men stand before the king seemingly powerless in the face of power, weak in the face of strength, and I want you to listen carefully to how they responded in Daniel chapter 3, beginning with verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Listen to the next part. But even if he does not, your majesty, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. In my personal opinion, this is one of the most poignant and powerful affirmations of faith in the Bible because it recognizes two realities. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, before the greatest king of their time, stand in faith and say, our God can and will deliver. God reigns. The Lord rules. Our lives are not in your hands. They are in God's hands. And we continue to affirm that as God's people today. One of my favorite chapters of the New Testament is Romans chapter 8, which goes through this litany of all the different things that may face us in this world, but the cry comes out, we are more than conquerors in the name of Jesus Christ. God rules. God is able. But hear the second part of their affirmation. They go on to say, even if God does not deliver us, they are humble enough to recognize they do not know God's will. They cannot presume to know how the Lord will act in this particular situation. It is their hope and belief that God will deliver them physically, but even if God does not, they will remain faithful in service to their Lord. The rest of the story is almost anticlimactic after this point because the three men's faith have been tested by fire and they've shown themselves faithful. It's one of these stories that we tell our children. A few years ago, they did it in a musical here at Northside Church. And you know how it goes. Nebuchadnezzar is infuriated by their response. He tells his soldiers to toss them into the fiery furnace. It is so hot that when the soldiers toss them in, they are overcome and die from the flames. But then the king looks into the furnace 
And he sees not three figures, but four unbound and walking around. Jewish theologians and later Christian scholars have debated about that fourth figure. An angel, the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God. Regardless of the identity given to that fourth figure, it is a reminder that God did not abandon these three men, but stood with them in the midst of the fire. And King Nebuchadnezzar, overcome with amazement, cries out to them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High, come out. And they come out. And their hair is not singed. And their robes are not scorched. And I love the next part of the detail. They don't even smell of smoke. And the king is so amazed at what has occurred that he calls all the people to worship the Jewish Most High God. It's a story that continues to resonate with us today. We are 2,600 years and 6,700 miles removed from ancient Babylonia. But we too, as God's people, constantly face the fiery furnace and the temptation to worship and to follow something or someone other than the Lord God Almighty. We live in a fallen world, and none of us get out of this without our unfair share of bumps, bruises, scars, and stitches. It rains on the just and the unjust alike, and part of what we see in the story is that being faithful does not protect you from harm. Sometimes being faithful puts you in harm's way. And we don't know what life is going to bring. James 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 14 says, Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. As one author put it, if you want to make God laugh, tell God your plans. What I can guarantee you without a shadow of a doubt, it is not a question of if, but when. We face the trials, the tribulations, and the temptations of this world. And although the events of Daniel 3 occurred a long time ago, a far, far away, they recur over and over again in our lives. We face a fiery furnace. And in the face of it, we make our affirmation of faith. We show what we believe. We declare who we serve. And on our best days, we have the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we believe that God can deliver. And all of us here in our faith journey have those stories. It's one of the benefits of gathering together as a community of faith. It gives us opportunities to tell one to the other how God has delivered. And every person here has that testimony, has that witness that we prayed and God showed up and showed out and did some miraculous things in our life. But not always at least not in the way we anticipated or hoped for. Because we don't presume to know God's will or to anticipate how the Lord will work. And sometimes God acts in a way we did not expect and did not want, and yet we are still called to choose faith in the fire. 
Many of you are aware that I had the opportunity to serve Sam Jones Memorial United Methodist Church in Cartersville from 2000 to 2013. Some of our good friends in the congregation and community were named Bob and Melanie Collier. Bob and I were about the same age. We shared the same admittedly bizarre, twisted sense of humor. Our children's ages were the same, and so we just kind of did life together. It's one of those wonderful blessings God gives uh, to pastors when they serve a church of having personal friends within it. In 2010, Melanie was diagnosed with breast cancer. Two weeks later, Bob was diagnosed with cancer as well. It was just one of those horrific moments in life that no one could anticipate and everyone fears. It was just the devastating news for them, for the church, for the community. And yet it also became an amazing moment of grace. Bob and Melanie literally had to lean on each other. And the church rallied around them, providing not only spiritual, but just basic physical needs, transporting their children where they needed to go, doing whatever needed to be done to get them to doctor's appointments. And the community, it became, it became part of the entire community of that area. I remember uh, Melanie wore T-shirts that spread across uh, the town that said, uh, fight like a girl. And it was just this amazing moment of grace, and through God and through physicians and through treatment, they both were able to recover, resume their normal lives, and we just all breathed a sigh of relief and just testified to God's might and God's power. Two years later, Bob's cancer recurred. And this time it was fast-moving, and it became evident fairly early on that there was no medical treatment that would stop it. And it was devastating for all of us. And I vividly recall visiting Bob in the hospital, and it was clear we were talking days, maybe weeks. And I walked in, and he said, um, Bill, I've been laying here in the bed just asking the question over and over again. Why me? one of those conversations you dread as a pastor. Because while there is a theological answer to that, that's what's not needed in a pastoral moment like that. And so I just sat with him in silence for a moment, but then he continued the conversation and made this amazing statement. He said, I've been asking over and over again, why me? But God told me I needed to turn the question around and ask, why me? Why me? Why did I do to deserve such a loving wife? What did I do to deserve such great children? What did I do to deserve a church that has supported us over the last months and years? What did I do to earn a community that has been there and loved us? Why me? A couple weeks later, I was standing beside the ICU bed. When Bob breathed his last and went on to be with his Lord. Here's the thing. We prayed for a miracle. And I believe we got it. 
It wasn't the miracle we wanted. It wasn't the miracle we sought. But it was the miracle we received. That we got to witness a faithful man of God live and die as a Christian. Believing in the fire that he was in. That God could deliver. But even if God did not. He would remain faithful. In 2002, Matt Redman, who is a very familiar Christian contemporary artist, released a song that we have heard today. It's titled, Blessed Be Your Name. And it really became the theme song for Bob and Melanie. In fact, I recall Melanie singing it in church one Sunday. There wasn't a dry eye in the room. Here again the words. Blessed be your name in a land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me. When the world's all that it should be, blessed be your name. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Today, in the midst of the fire, we claim the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our God can deliver. But regardless, we will serve the Lord. And we're reminded there's always a fourth in the fire. Let us pray. Gracious God, for some of us, this is a time of celebration and laughter and joy. And we give you thanks for those moments of life. For others among us, it is a time of grief and sorrow and desperation. And we thank you that you are there with us. Whatever we face, wherever we might be, remind us we're not alone. There's a fourth in the fire, now and forever. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen.